Welcome to the first episode of the Living to Write podcast. I'm your host, Brian Landwehr, and I'm a writer. And if you're listening, I'll bet you are too, or maybe you'd like to be. Or maybe you're simply interested in story, writers, writing, and the mystery of the blood, sweat, tears, and occasional joy that turns inspired ideas into inspired screenplays and novels. In each episode, we're going to talk with a successful writer about their methods, achievements, challenges, experiences, as well as their advice for other writers. And when I say we, I'm referring to both myself and our producer, Bailey Patterson. Bailey is uh, also a writer, a damn good one, as well as a director. And without him, none of this would be possible, not least of which because this podcast was his idea. So, Bailey... Are you ready to give this a try? Yeah, you know, I'm, uh, I'm excited to get this thing rolling. Uh, what's the saying? If you don't try, you'll never know. So uh, let's get after it, shall we? Okay. For this first episode, we're either making things easier or harder on ourselves, I'm not sure, by chatting with someone we both already know. That is screenwriter and novelist Jeff Arch who is undoubtedly best known as the Academy Award-nominated writer of Sleepless in Seattle, and more recently, as author of the novel Attachments, which I'll just go ahead and shamelessly plug for him here. It's terrific, and everyone should give it a read, absolutely. Bailey and I have been lucky enough to stay in touch with Jeff since being mentored by him at a Story Summit event a few years back. He's incredibly generous with his time and full of great stories and fantastic advice for writers. And, and you know, Bailey, now that I think about it, Jeff is so full of great stories and advice that if we're not careful, it seems to me this first episode could end up like, what, three hours long? Yeah, well, if it does, we can fix it in post. It's not a problem. Okay, then. I won't worry about it. Let's get Jeff in here. Thanks very much for joining us, Jeff, and getting our first episode of the podcast off to a great start. We're very happy to have you here. I'm delighted to be here with you guys. It's been three years. Crazy. It's been three years, almost. Almost. Yeah, my ability to gauge the passage of time is a little bit broken lately. It's Doing three quarters. We're coming around to coming around to three. Can you believe that? No, everybody no. take a second. Every, you know. Well, it was we met just as COVID was becoming a thing. Yeah. Yeah. At the time there were there were just there were a couple of cruise ships in China that were sort of keeping them in China. And we thought, you know, as soon as we landed, that other cruise went right back out. And they probably were the very last one. Yeah, I, I honestly um, I honestly feel like if our meeting on that cruise ship had been scheduled even maybe two weeks later, uh, we wouldn't have, or I wouldn't have. No, and I, wouldn't I think have. most others wouldn't. Even at the time, it was iffy. It was iffy, and, like, and oh. you know, I, the grief that I gave people by going anyway was only a warm-up for the grief that they gave me when I went to the one in October. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. At least it wasn't on a cruise ship, but... Um, no, yeah. but, man... I made the mistake of, um, you know, that picture one of you guys put up of, of us in the uh, townhouse where I was teaching. So it, with my class and they saw me 
in this room with my class and they just flip the hell out right you know why weren't you you know and i said listen man we had giant sliding doors that were open like crazy come on leave it we were spraying you know there i had this whole costco sized thing of lysol and shit and, um, but yeah so i got a lot of grief and and um for the people at the story summit or, or doing this because you're a member of our group and anybody on the outside of it everybody just take and the two of you guys because we were there you know everybody just take a deep breath and think about where they were two years ago and think about where they are now i would almost guarantee that things are better you know and in and, and lots of really surprising ways um because well of course nobody saw this coming but even without that um the, the associations everybody's made uh since we decided that you know when we got off that cruise I hated this thing where every time you go to one of these conferences, everybody bonds really quickly and they all say, oh, yeah, we're going to do email and they get the big email list and it goes on for about three weeks and then it peters out to like three people and then nobody has it just in 12 weeks, it's all gone. I didn't want that. So we scheduled our things once a month and I think that either either all of us got the same idea at the same time or that got the ball rolling. And so... Um, this idea of this does not end when you walk off the ship. This does not end when the conference ends. And because of COVID, you know, it, like everybody else, it figured out how to take this whole thing online. So there, you know, Amy and Deb and David got, you know, and there's suddenly there's a story summit writer's school. So I think they said we have something like 2,000 people now. If you don't take in the need to be big, then you're comfortable at whatever size you're at. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I yeah, the, the, well, I was going to say that the school's off to an amazing start, but it's beyond a start at this point. It, uh, it, it's established. Yeah, I think we're, we're at cruising speed now. You know, <laughs> once something gets past 200 people, a live conference, uh, it, look, they can be great, but they all start to lose some things. Uh, you gain some things because the really highly populated conferences can often draw, you know, more A-list agents you know all across the board uh but it's a little less personal you know you, you know everybody's going to find five or six people but um we all stayed together i mean we all stayed together we've had very few people just say you know enough of this you know so um so not only grew but the foundation gets stronger all the time yeah it is a really uh, impressive organization overall. Um, I've been really impressed by the number of people and the kinds of people I've met and, and even talking about the, uh, um, monthly zoom calls yeah. that you organize, not only have people stuck with it, but you originally had, uh, two different groups that you merged along the way. So during this period of the pandemic, I have, actually met and made developed bonds exactly, with yeah. more people um, instead of losing track of everybody. Um, um, and here all this time later, Bailey, you, mm -hmm. the two of us met on that exactly. ship and here we are doing this. And we probably have not gone no. over two months in the last almost three years without talking at least a bit and usually at least monthly. So impressive. And you couldn't have known that walking onto that ship that two years later you're doing a pod. 
That's the no, beauty of the no. whole thing. There's a certain amount of surrender, and you know, we all got to make plans. Um, everybody's got their vision board, you know, and and or whatever way there is of getting themselves, you know, prepared for the future. And you know, and, you know, instead of they're just kind of waltzing in, <laughs> but really saying there's something I want, and I'm going to take measured steps to go get it, which is what we're all doing. Uh, we all know that there's something we want, and we're taking measured steps to go get it. That's all you can do. But when you're doing that, and you know, it's it's sort of like compound interest that uh, the momentum and the stuff you do compounds, and so you're getting more for less effort sometimes. So when you when you still make more effort, you're getting even more and more. The momentum grows, bigger and better things come into your life. But also, you know, I know that on our calls um, in the last two years, a lot of us have had. Uh, a lot of life changes in a relatively short amount of time. There's been, there's been sicknesses. There's, there's, uh, there's been a divorce. There's been, you know, um, all kinds of stuff. And we have this group. We have our own communities, but we built this community where it's safe to talk about that stuff. Which is my original um, vision for how I'm gonna, how I wanted to teach things. Which is this isn't just beating a guys up about craft. But it's the other side of what it's like to actually be a person who's doing this stuff. Because the person, who, you know, this is our work. We finished with our work. Now here we are with us. But that thing's out there. And also after that happens, when something wonderful happens and your thing gets bought and your thing gets either published or produced and you see it up there and you go through the whole soup to nuts thing, it's still you. But anyway not just the craft of writing, but the emotional life of the writer is what was really, really, really important to me. And that's why we've continued this way. And all the mentors have their teams and, you know, we just, nobody jumps off the ship, <laughs> you know, unless they, <laughs> unless, yeah, unless they want to, you know, they got to really want to because we're staying in touch. So part of getting through this experience emotionally is having that community of people who understand. Our childhood friends might understand half of three quarters, whatever, but unless you're talking to other writers, there's just stuff that the person you're communicating with is not going to understand. They can, they can, you know, read your cues and figure out a, you know, a, 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 a meaningful response, but they're not going to understand it because they can't feel it. So to have, that's one of those brave hearts and the, her spirit things to have those situations <laughs> where, um, you can let down your guard in front of other people who absolutely understand it from the inside out. And the males only and females well, only uh, groups that meet online, just for our listeners who, who aren't familiar. Yeah. Those are just two examples, but even in the mixed things, I mean, even just on our teams, we have both and um, every, at all different stages of life. And uh, but the one thing that unites us is that we're writers. So we also have this common thing of, but it's like to sit down and do this and with everything whatever else is going on in your life kids running around you know whatever it is three different jobs um to still you gotta sit down and do this there's no way to do it you can dictate it but you're still sitting down to do it even if you're walking and dictating that's your version of sitting down to do it you gotta put the words on the page and uh the emotional life of what it takes to do that. Um, for some reason, I just got it in my head that the worst thing in the world would be to get all the way to your Oscar, to your National Book Award, to your Pulitzer Prize, 
and you go home and there's nobody that gives a shit. Mm. And uh, uh, so working the emotional life of the writer while we're working our work helps that not happen. So anyway, that's been my approach. And now let's have a question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we were ready. Well, that, that's <laughs> that whole 15 minute rant was for David. Now, when you hey, ask questions, I'm going to make shorter answers. I mean, this is to put it. we knew who we were having on. So like we've, we've trained for this. It's all right. <laughs> okay. Um, and that is not a complaint. Um, so, Jeff, um, you were interested in a question. So here's a question for you. And this question is either a softball question or the deepest of questions, depending on what you want to do with it. How do we find ourselves here? How, how why, why are you, why are you this writer that we're speaking with right now? Why, why writing? How, how are you, you? If you want to turn that into how did this start for you, that's great. So this started because I was um, uh, a third kid in a family of five and a last cousin and a group of, I don't know, seven or cousins or something. I was the last one and there was no counterparts to me. Everybody else had somebody their own age, cousins and stuff. So I was just like the tail of the dog. Nobody would listen if I said something. You, you, just, couldn't, you just couldn't pierce through that stuff. But as soon as I learned to write things, I realized if I wrote something down and someone laughed at it as something, uh, first of all, you get a laugh. And that's the best thing in the world. Just that is, that is the drug, making another person laugh. Um, so I saw also, you know, in a deep psychological sense, we're going to go there. Um, you're safe if they're laughing. Laughing people don't attack. Laughing people don't tease. Laughing people don't bully. You know, you can keep people at arm's length and also bring them all the way in just by being able to make them laugh. So I realized this is, doesn't just feel great, but this is survival. Then I realized another thing, and this is nothing, nothing you can say to yourself, your system is getting, because I was really, really young. Then I noticed once that um, I was in the house and I think my mom showed a piece of paper that I'd left behind to someone else and they laughed at it all over again. And I went... I wrote that joke last week and I'm getting uh, paid now feedback and laughter. That was the beginning. I mean, that's the same as getting royalties. Uh, I didn't, it wasn't money, you know, who, who needed money at age six, but uh, um, it's the same thing. You get royalties, you, you get a continuous, you know, um, deposit back to you for something you've already done. And uh, I got I got hooked on that too. So, uh, if you're having a bad day, something's left behind. You know, somebody can still pick it up and read it. So I noticed that I could control people with writing. I could keep them away, and I could bring them in, especially if what I wrote was funny. Wow, that is a fantastic and fantastically interesting answer. I uh, even though we've known you half an hour too. <laughs> even though we've known you for a while and we we know a thing or two about you, um, I didn't honestly know precisely what your response to that was going to be. So <laughs> interesting. So now that you are all grown up and you are that writer, it's one thing to be able to write. You're a professional writer. Um, how? 
And we've been through them. All professional writers. Yeah, we've been I was just about to yeah, say, yeah. Brian. Oh, oh, I wasn't <laughs> trying to draw a bright line between us. I'm just, just you know, giving the man credit where credit's due. Um, yeah, so... Uh, so now that you know how happy uh, writing makes you and uh, what does doing the writing look like? How, what, what's, what's a day or a week or a month look like for you? How do you get it done? Anybody can have ideas and anybody can have a great idea, but what are you doing about it that the average person isn't? Well, I think the average person's probably working a little harder than I am right now because I'm working at a below average level, but uh, I'm, I'm giving myself a little bit of credit and, and room in the lane to, to, to do that for a while, but I'm, I'm picking it up. But, you know, at the beginning of my career, I was a madman, you know, uh, six hours, six days a week. Uh, you know, I'd still be home for dinner and put my kids to bed and everything, but um uh, and I was putting out like 40 pages a week, either wow. one story or a mixture of it, it just, I was a monster and, you know, other writers would think you get two pages. It was something, but, uh, that was a blue collar all day long job where, uh, you know, I'm doing the same thing now, just in different proportions and obviously a different level of intensity. You're different at 35 than you are at 65. Sure. And so I don't necessarily have to be a monster at it now, but the day had the same components, a certain amount of exercise, a certain amount of, you know, reflection time, if not active meditation, just reflection time, daydreaming time, um, family time, reading stuff and, you know, doing stuff that supports my spirit, doing stuff that supports my imagination um, and working. So it's sort of like the subjects in school. If you have five subjects, you got to hit them all every day. And that's when I realized the question almost every writer has is, why did we have to learn math? And, uh, and the reason is because you have to learn to get good at something that you're not naturally good at, at least good enough to get by. So no one ever said you had to get an A in math if, if you just don't have a math brain. You just can't flunk. So it's how to bring up the things we're worst at to at least an average level and then work on the things we're good at and then just make them better. So um, I, the whole idea, the balance is different, but the, the, the ingredients are the same. Reflection, exercise, actually butt in the chair working. There is a part where you have to, once you, um, let's put it this way, we're all, we're all professionals the minute we behave like professionals and declare that. Uh, but then to really say it's your career, I guess that's when the next level of professional is where you're, you're getting paid. And, and uh, so you're professional whether you're getting paid or not. But once it becomes your career, then you have that to manage. And uh, that's a little, there's this whole other level of people skills that we, have, that we might not naturally have. Being writers, it's a good chance we're not, we weren't loaded with people skills and, uh, uh, but you have to have that. So I had to take that on. Uh, so in every area, it's who are you presenting to the world? Who are you presenting to yourself? And how can you achieve a balance of hitting those five or six subjects every day in some proportion, leaving, leaving nothing out? You know, if you can't get to one, one day, just put it right back on the next day. So you're sort of just growing like that so that you are ready to meet whatever comes. So 
in your uh, early days when you were being that monster and cranking out 40 pages a day yeah. and all that good stuff. Okay. Uh, what, uh, what was the first time that uh, you were butting up against the business side of things and how did that go? Were you writing stuff on spec or were you getting jobs at that point? Were you rewriting? I wrote, I wrote, I wrote sleepless on spec. And then since then I didn't have to write anything on spec anymore, but I think I chose to write two things. And one of them became the movie Jane was in uh, Longfellow bridge. Um, but no, once that script sold, uh, um, uh, it was pigs in a trough, man. And just the mail would come with five scripts from different, you know, Disney wants you to look at these five things. And, so I wrote, no, I wrote one spec right after that. And then I was hired at a pretty low entry rate to write something else, to develop something for somebody else. So by the time, so Sleep was sold in the Memorial Day weekend of 90. And so a year later, I'd written enough material. So I think I had four scripts circulating. And um, I would go to meetings, and the first thing people would say is, I just, I had them, I cannot figure out how the same person wrote these four scripts because they were vastly different from each other. Um, but when there was one thing that went through them all, and I'm only repeating what I was told, you know, which was heart. So these scripts would start coming in from studios and stuff and production companies, you know, this person's attached to this, this pretty, you know. Um, we need to do what you do to this kind of, to this script. They, they just said, you know, it needs a dialogue polish, whatever. But they said, you just got to put some heart in. So whether it was a musical or a Western, um, they sent me sometimes some something about Mary before they sent it to the Farrelly Brothers. And God thank the world that I passed on it <laughs> because um, there isn't any, you know, <laughs> there actually is a really great big beating heart in that movie. Um, but I just, you know, I, they're, they're, yeah, it's a second subject. There's a gigantic lesson in how to deal with these people once you're you're on the merry-go-round and you're on the phone. Uh, it, 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 suddenly you're talking to people in the movie business and you're talking to people who, who, who facilitate movies or make movies or get in the way of movies and they have a different language, method, MO, and, and here you are, you got to do business with them eye to eye. So, Jeff, if we could just rewind here for a moment, um, I would love to talk about your Oscar-nominated screenplay, Sleepless in Seattle. Stars Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan and directed by Nora Ephron. Let's start with the logline. Radio station? He's in Seattle. He phones in one of those radio call-in shows. He tells them that his dad needs a new wife. She's in Baltimore. I want to meet you. Where is Seattle? Right. Where's Baltimore? Is this crazy? Ah, it's right there! What if this man is my destiny and I never meet him? Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Sleepless in Seattle. So, Jeff, what made you want to write Sleepless in Seattle? You know, why these characters? Why Sam Baldwin? Was there just something inside of you that you had to say? You just needed to get out of you? What was it? Where did it come from? I wanted to write a love story, and I knew enough at the time that... The first question you better be able to answer in a love story is what's going to keep two people apart. And if you don't know what's going to keep them apart, you don't have a love story yet. So 
so many of the romantic comedies that were out and about at the time it weren't a whole lot, but they were bullshit because you have this whole second act where you have to make up stuff that's you know phony from the outside. You just have to have all these contrivances happen to get you through to the moment where they have their fight at the end of the second act, and then they split up and they both have the montage with the slow music and everything. And then each one has got to come back to the other and a gift to the magi kind of thing, you know, and say the thing they never said because they finally learned the thing that they didn't learn until they broke up. Every romantic comedy, and most of them were really false. That was the beginning of when they started to, in the 90s, it was the beginning of, you know, the meet cute thing. And suddenly, well, we got to have a meet cute. It was always somebody spilling coffee on someone. If you were a film librarian, you could just dial up how many romantic comedies had someone spilling coffee on someone and like, give me a break. <laughs> so I was kind of under the gun. Uh, I had sold my business and I gave myself a year to write three movies. And the first one was a really good effort and a really good buddy comedy, but it had a Cold War theme and the Cold War ended that year. So instead of saying, you know, here's one more reason why you got to give this shit up. I asked a different question and it was a bitter lesson because people would have bought the movie. Uh, and it didn't occur to me yet as a writer. Hey, you know what? Set this, take the same exact story and set it in 1962 when there will always be a Cold War in 1962, and it would have worked. But I didn't think of it at the time. But the lesson I got was not you have to quit this business and get it through your head that you're never going to get in, but you did something that was take, that was um, attached to current events. And so even though the Russians were our enemies for like 50 years, you can't count on it. So don't ever do anything anymore that has to do with current events because it will eventually be sooner or later be dated. Then I said, what's timeless? That was the question. What's timeless? And I thought love is timeless. And uh, I called, I did have an agent who had been very patiently answering the phone for about five years at that point, while I came up with nothing after nothing that he could sell. He was growing as a writer. And I called him and he said, yeah, if you write a love story, if you write a good love story, I can sell it. So um, I said, okay, I'm gonna write a love story. I put the kids to bed. I told my wife at the time, I told their mother, Everybody's going to go to bed. I'm going to go downstairs and I'm going to think of a love story. And she said, okay. So I go into this room in the back of our house, like the utility room where everybody just throws shit. And there was cat litter there and an old couch we weren't using and the skylight. And uh, I was pretty desperate. I mean, I was really keyed up to like, I know I'm going to be able to do this. I don't know how I, you know, just so pumped up from whatever got me there. And in that, in that, you know, complete desperation, but also absolute enthusiasm and certainty that somehow I was going to do this. So I go in and I start thinking of love stories and it's the same thing. You know, they, he's riding a bike in New York. She gets out of the cab, the cab door opens, knocks him off his bike. They swear at each other. They both take different elevators up to a corporate boardroom where now they're on different sides of an issue and ha ha ha, you know, now they're going to bicker for 60 pages, you know, and then they're going to, and I just, it made me sick and I, I don't want to do that. And I got more and more frustrated and the night was getting longer and longer. And at some point I looked up through this skylight. This story's for you, David Kirkpatrick. You've heard it a hundred times. Or <laughs> it doesn't change. This is true. This is what happened. I looked up through this skylight. And it was this freezing cold night in January in Virginia. And I guess there was no moon and the stars were unbelievable. And um, I just said, for every star in the sky, there's a good idea. There's a good idea for every star in the sky. And I just kind of sat there and I tried this thing a couple of more times. And I also, a, a wise person told me once that, you know, frustration means you're about to have a breakthrough. 
So you couldn't be more frustrated than I was at that moment. And then I just said, fuck it. What if they don't ever meet? And, um, you know, okay, they never meet. And then uh, I said, well, wait a minute. What if they, they never meet, but they meet on top of the Empire State Building on the last page at the sunset on Valentine's Day? And then I thought everything after that was a technical exercise. Okay, now work back from that. You know, you know these two people who don't know each other. And so what I, how to answer that question, what's going to come between them? What's going to keep them apart? The United States of America is 3,000 miles wide and they don't know about each other. So my very first attempt was to do it where they absolutely were completely unaware of each other, but we were aware that they were perfect for each other. And they just, because their lives led separate paths to the same thing at the same place at the same time. That was what came down the first night. I called my agent the next day and he put me in touch with a producer friend of his who I told him the story. And he said, you got to find a way to connect them. And I, I said, you know, I really think I can tell two completely parallel stories where they have nothing to do with each other and no awareness, but the audience will be the glue and the audience will play Cupid and I can get them there at the same moment and it'll pay off. And he said, I know you can do it, but you got to throw a bone. This is too unconventional. Find a way to connect them. So the next night I go back into the same room and I look up and it's cloudy. <laughs> There's no stars in the sky. <laughs> so um, I, I said, okay, I know they're there. And then this thing came down about a radio psychologist. Um, because every time, every time I drove, I flew out to LA for meetings or something, I'd rent a car and the car was always tuned to KNX in LA, an AM station. And I always seemed to land at about 11 or 12 in the morning from a cross country trip. And there'd be this radio psychologist on, I forget her name. She was pre-Dr. Laura, but she was into some pretty salacious stuff, like at one in the afternoon. So I'm on the 405 and I'm listening to people talking about, you know, that's where I got that line in the movie. Every time, um, every time I have an orgasm, he goes to make a sandwich. And she says, why don't you make him a sandwich beforehand? <laughs> you know, that's not one of the things I heard on that show, but I got that, you know, because people were talking about orgasms and shit in the middle of the day you know, in, in the 80s. And, and so I remembered that. I remembered that there was an episode of This Old House where Bob Vila flew out to Seattle because a friend of his had, had remodeled a houseboat. So I saw that show like in 1980 and I thought, hey, it'd be really cool to live on a houseboat in Seattle. So I went, okay, a guy loses his wife. They live on a houseboat in Seattle. And it turned out I was in this really small town and there was a little regional paper. And this woman came through town once and her name is immortalized on this diary page. Her name is Juanita Thigpen. And she heard that some guys, you know, this karate teacher is also a writer. I hadn't done anything yet. So I said, I'll call you when there's something. So uh, I called her the next day to tell her, you know, just to update her on what was happening. So... But she worked at this regional paper. She went around taking people's stories, cats caught in trees, but more than that, you know, there's not a whole lot going on. And she was, uh, her boyfriend was the editor of the paper. And I thought that's pretty interesting. So suddenly Walter becomes the editor uh, and the publisher of a small regional paper where she's a reporter. It was much smaller. My original draft, she lived in Lancaster, PA, mm -hmm. and not Baltimore. There's a reason we moved her to Baltimore. But... Um, so those elements, you know, um, an episode of This Old House that I saw some Saturday morning in the 70s or something, and this French movie that Claude Lelouch made called And Now My Love, where he really did tell two completely parallel stories 
and there was no connection. I think they brushed past each other in a nightclub at some point. It's a classic movie. At the very end, they sit down next to each other on an airplane. They both order coffee with three lumps of sugar, and it cuts to their luggage going up the conveyor belt together. And it's like the most romantic thing in the world. And everybody remembered that. But really, the movie was a really angry diatribe about war and Western civilization and all the, you know, how brutal men are. But it tracked these two people through this whole thing. And it wasn't romantic at all until that moment. So I remembered the power of an ending because that just blew me away. And um, so I had the elements, you know, two people that are having parallel lives. I found a way to connect them. One lives in Seattle. One works at a regional paper and is engaged to her husband, engaged to her boyfriend. And she's got a... So that's what's going on above the surface. Mm -hmm. Below the surface, the stuff I didn't know about was Tom Hanks's character just carried all the disappointment that I had built up. Um, and all those years of trying so hard and not getting anywhere. I'm getting better as a writer, but not breaking through. All the disappointment. Um, and he he had no desire line in this whole movie. He could never have been the main, he could never have been the protagonist. Yet his only desire was to keep things from getting worse. Um, you know, draw the wagons around his son, let him grow up, keep things small. And just, if, if I don't go out there, nothing can hurt. And, um, Meg, her character was somebody that, you know, had a pretty good cover story for her life. But there was this nagging thing inside her that said there's more, that, that you know, almost to the point where how dare I complain about the life that I have, but damn it, there's more. And it's going to torture me until I go after it and I can't settle until I do. The little kid was um, a little kid, you know. If you believe something hard enough and you don't know the rules of the adult world, it really can happen. So at the end, those three parts, disappointed, yearning for a destiny and believing in magic, um, boom, they all end up in an elevator and the doors close. So none of the surface stuff, none of the things that happened in that movie were my story. Underneath, I was working out my psychology. I was working out how to how to integrate these three parts, a disappointed person, a dreamer, and a person that still wanted to believe in magic, even though everybody knows it never happens. Uh, but, and this is what I teach you guys, but none of that was going on. All I was doing every day was, how do I get them to the top of the Empire State Building by page 120? And anything that didn't do that, I couldn't write. I threw out anything. If it even got me there temporarily, I kept it in because I was like a racehorse getting that thing done. How long? Oh, beat me to it, Bailey. <laughs> this, this took three and a half weeks and I had two other jobs and two kids and the flu. Oh, so, um, but I couldn't stop. I, I was terrified. I said, I had, I had to finish this before either someone else did uh, or if it was going to suck and not be, you know, I didn't want to spend three months on it. So I was determined to get this out of my system really, really quickly. And really, on one hand, creatively, I was as on fire as you can be. But also inside, I was still completely desperate. And that combination, I think, you know, the dreamer and the, and the reality, um, that combination, I think, was like this vibe that went through the whole script. It had nothing to do with the words, but what I was going through 
you guys were going through when you read the script and, and you see the movie. Just that year, that yearning, that just I know it's out there. God damn it, I know it's out there. You know, and w- what am I prepared to risk to get what's what's you know I think is waiting for me? So, at what point in the writing of that, or after the completion, did you did you know it was right? Because I'd worked out all the story problems. When I got from fade in to fade out, and there were no moments where someone said that's just not a logical thing to happen, where you could say, look, maybe other things could have happened, but that certainly could have happened, you know, um, as long as everything just sort of naturally is something that would happen in life, and it, and, it, and you, you got them believably to that same moment at that same exact time, um, you know, it's it's just solving problems. How's she going to find out about him? Well, at the time, this was 1990, and I'd seen it. I, I saw um, an article in the Washington Post. At that time, women were starting to hire detectives to check up on people that they were dating. It turns out, a lot of guys lie about whether they're married or not. And, no uh, way! I know. I know. Separate I, podcast. I know. Um, so, I have you know, not heard about this. We'll talk more about that later. You know, you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't do a, our next Braveheart <laughs> section. Well, you know, what lies have you told? But you're, um, uh, um, but that's something that was happening to the metro, you know, woman. And there wasn't Google. There wasn't an internet. You couldn't, you couldn't look somebody up. So uh, they were. Hi- I just saw they were hiring a detective. So okay, she's going to hire a detective. That way, she doesn't have to go away all the way across the country. But that gives me another beat because now she decides to go and then mm. she's got to see something that, that that she mistakes for something else and goes back saying, I wish I'd never, ever turn on the radio that night. And again, that was sort of me dealing with the disappointment of things that had gone wrong earlier in my career. Colossal rejections, public, you know, and and, uh, and also the private ones, just not getting there. Just I finished another one. High hopes. It doesn't sell. You know, um, I finished another one. High hopes. It doesn't sell. But each time they're getting better getting better as a craftsman. And then, you know, when I was ready for an idea like that, it came. So when you were finishing up or or at at the end, did you feel that, did you feel, ah, uh, that's wonderful, I succeeded, it works, or did you feel, gee, I wrote something kind of special here? Oh, before it sold, what what did it feel like to you? I knew not just that the story um, worked technically, that every beat naturally led to another beat. You know, I believed in those characters. I believed in their charm. I learned a lot from Frank Capra's movies where, you know, every and, and, and Preston Sturges where every character's got a story. Everybody's, you know, everybody's the hero of their own story. And... Um, I never forgot that. So the smallest extra in anything of mine still has a life. He's still going to make a comment. So all my influences went into that thing, but also I didn't hold back on the desperation and the absolute existential desperation that I felt because I didn't know what I was going to do if this didn't work. So how long did it take before you then had someone else believing it, someone in the business believing in it as well? It took forever, but you know what? It wasn't even two months, <laughs> but it, it felt like forever. 
So my agent got it to some people and they really liked it. I would hear words like it's a little sentimental, it's a little vanilla, but they were really charmed by it and all that stuff. Um, and he, uh, when it got to Gary Foster, who had a deal with TriStar, it was like Cupid's arrow. It, it hit him. And he really wanted to make the movie. And he um, he knew how to work the studio and how to get them to get to do it, to buy it, and how to get them to develop it and produce it. And, and uh, for that, we're lifelong friends and he's got my undying loyalty. So anything I write or come up with, it goes to him first. So, you know, the, the, the team has to gather, but really the night I thought of it, the night I heard the word sleepless in Seattle in my head for the first time, you know, I, I, it was like fireworks. And, and I knew you get this right. It's going to go all the way. It's going to continue for years. They're going to play word games with that title till the cows come home. And, 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 and that was it, that it was going to, and that the right people were going to come along. And I still knew that the wrong people, some wrong people were going to come along too, but it's strong enough to shake them off. I think it would be good for our, our listeners. Um, and if you could talk a little bit about this, Jeff, is the profession of rewriting and being rewritten and rewriting other people because it is something that does happen so often and that you see in our business. I mean, how many times do you see uh, a movie credit and there's, I think, you know, I just saw Halloween Ends and I think there was like at least four or five writing credits on on the screenplay itself. So, you know, what's that process like? Uh, you share two story credits on Sleepless in Seattle. Did someone just sort of come in and change all your beautifully hardwritten words? Some things hurt about as much as you can imagine and more. I had the overall view and I had this um, mantra with Gary, the producer, and the mantra was lines around the block. You know, he kept me in the loop and he, he had to call me and tell me I've been replaced. I repeated that. I, I didn't go on a tantrum. I didn't say, you, fuck, you know, how dare, you know, I knew going in, you sell it, the day you, the day you deposit the check, it's not yours anymore. Hmm. You're at their service. They're not at your service. That's the way it works. You sell your copyright. Um, and so they've now bought a, they've now bought a house from you that they can paint any color they want mm -hmm. and they can turn a Spanish colonial into a modern condo if they want. And you got nothing to say. I felt all the way along back from that thing that the right people are going to come along. And I just had this faith that every, you know, and every time Gary informed me of this, a decision or a consideration and brought me into the loop, I'd say, lines around the block, man, let's get that. And so I had faith that it was going to, that that vision would happen and it would get lines around the block. Also, I just had made up my mind. I'm never going to think about what I'm not getting. I'm only going to think about what I'm getting because, uh, you, you know, they can strip away your dignity piece by piece. And sometimes they try, sometimes it just happens organically. And sometimes they really try. Let's see if we can fuck with this guy. Um, but I refuse to be, I refuse to be lowered. So, there are a lot of great cases for why there shouldn't be anybody else's name on the writing credits of that of that thing, um, because no matter what changes were made, it's still essentially my story, my characters. Everything happens when it happens, and uh, I just got beat by that system that time because I was a rookie. But on the other hand, I'm sharing the screen with Academy Award winner David Ward and nominee Nora Ephron. We didn't work together. We didn't collaborate. One one thing that people um, really need to know is how to read writing credits. There is, if it says Bailey and Brian, if you worked as a team, it's going to say Bailey and the word and and Brian. 
if there's an ampersand, that means they were replaced. It's, they were not working together. So uh, this was three ampersands. This was whichever one it was. I would solve a credit problem just by saying, this the writers in the order. You know, so I was first, David was second, Laura was third. And that's the way it should have been. On the other hand, am I going to bitch about that? My first movie got made at that level, got to audiences, you know, watching Sony move millions of dollars around the world, you know, and I never, I'm not sitting in my room while it's happening. Everything about it was fantastic. It's, I made a decision how I was going to look at things. And then I stayed with that decision. What was their motivation for handing the screenplay over to other writers? Did they want some more uh, established names to be connected with it? Did they just want to work with the people they were used to working with? Did they want changes that they didn't think you were the right guy to do? Or do you not know? A little bit of all of that. Oh, okay. The, the one thing that um, that was a real concrete concern was that they were worried that it was um, a little too sentimental and not funny enough. So the difference between humor mm. and comedy my script was humorous all the way through. There weren't any big comedy moments. Mm. So it, they could have said to me, we want more comedy. But that's where it diverged off. If you are a film executive and you're shepherding this movie through and you stay with the original writer and the thing tanks, you're screwed. You're, you're screwed. You're not getting yeah. the table anymore. Your phone list goes from 200 calls a day to five. You're done. And everybody in the studio is... But the other executives at your level are laughing their asses off at you. It's terrible. They never want that. Because everybody can point to the moment they took the wrong turn. Why did you stay with yeah. a rookie writer? Why yeah. did you trust this to a rookie, right? So now, now that you know what their jobs are like, they rise by how many people they know. So if they can call in three other writers that um, maybe they never intended to employ, but it's enough of a reason to get them in and have discussions and start a relationship. Now they know three other writers. So you can use it as bait to get more people on your Rolodex and to get, you know, it's a relationship business. Uh, but also they did want somebody who could do those things, but also who had, you know, who wasn't a rookie and who had a giant presence named value. Yeah. So not a single thing that David Ward did and not a single thing that Nora did made it any better. They just made it a little bit different. And, and the comedy, and it came from Rob Reiner and Tom Hanks just riffing off each other. And and the big laughing scene where Rita Wilson is doing that, that wasn't in the script. You you, you would never give a three-page scene to um, Rita, an incidental character, a supporting character. And you can't you can't use that movie page real estate doing that. But when you're on the set, you can do those things. And when uh -huh. something starts to work, you run with it. But you wouldn't have put that into the, into the shooting script. So um, I think some, you know, when Gary told me I was getting replaced, I said, just listen, this is a deceptively tricky script. There are booby traps all over this thing, um, structurally. So make sure you get somebody a whole lot better than I am, because <laughs> if you get somebody worse, what the fuck is the point of that? And if you get somebody the same, you just could have kept me. Um, get somebody who's really, really way better so that they can elevate this thing. Um, otherwise, you know, you're, you're wasting time and money. And you're also burning out a writer that you didn't need to burn out. I think you told our blue group one time, uh, or, or Brian and myself, that when you feel somebody pulling on your heartstrings in the movie, uh, that's you. And when you feel uh, a laughter, that that's Nora. I think if you, yeah, I, I still believe that. If you if you think of this hilarious moment, that probably wasn't me. <laughs> I set up the moment. 
you know, I set it up. He goes on a date. It doesn't like the date, you know, so they treat, you know, structurally that's there. Nobody else thought of that but me. He goes on a date. The kid doesn't like her, tries to sabotage him. You know, I never saw anybody cook potatoes that way, you know, um, shit like that. So uh, the big funny moments were Rob Reiner, Tom Hanks, Nora, Nora's sister, Delia, and some, some good editing and stuff. Um, but no, the heart in it, and Nora would have told you that herself. Uh, um, it's what she liked and couldn't stand about me. And no, knowing and reading your work, you can you can definitely feel that. And yeah, it's so. nothing. I okay. I'll tell you a really quick story because I was working on. I was about to say it's nothing. I can just manufacture at the press of a button. But I was working on a movie called Saving Millie, and the director Dan Curtis. You know, I would do a lot of work at home, but I would come into the office every day for a while. He had one of those telescoping. Um, like roach clip things where you tap the, we're both sitting here and we tap the screen and we get, you know, the script's already written and we're, we're looking for little pockets to, to make better. And he's sitting there and we're at the end of the movie and this guy's wife has now had Parkinson's for a really long time and she's telling the family that she wants to die and it's really kind of, it's super heavy. And he taps the screen because he says, put some bullshit about love in here. And, and <laughs> we just both cracked up. And I sat there right in front of him in that second, you know, I wrote the scene that we both started crying. Wow. Um, but yeah, it is a jukebox, you know, put some bullshit about love. And I, I had it all, I had all the momentum from it. I was writing a love story. What complicated the love story was she gets Parkinson's and he's got to go fight for her when he wasn't that kind of guy. That was a real story. That was his memoir. There, there is a time when, to me, that's the craft. That's what we're all here to learn. If someone says, put some bullshit about love in here, that you know how to do it. You don't have to go off to the woods and meditate and set up your candles. And, you know, you can do it right then and there with the guy watching and fluorescent lights and somebody taking a lunch order. You can do it. You can do it right there if you've put in the, the time and the effort and thought and have some fundamental skills in this area. So um, we've heard some about the process both from craft and business standpoints of writing this uh, iconic romantic comedy but to rewind again how did you develop those skills um i know you've told us why you were interested in writing um and when you're six and you can write something funny super but later in life when you were pursuing the writing, what were you reading or doing or watching to get yourself immersed in um, the craft of writing and to get your head right and your head around all this? Okay, influences. Yeah. Um, uh, John Steinbeck was a gigantic influence. Um, I read East of Eden in college on my own and uh, was just blown away by the language by the character's outlook on life. And even though the title was East of Eden and I knew my Bible stories, it still didn't occur to me he's telling the story of um, you know, Cain and Abel or Jacob and Esau. It's Jacob and Esau. You know, and I didn't get it. You know, um, I could have watched West Side Story a thousand times and not gone, hey, that's Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> no, just didn't. Um, but Steinbeck's language and his outlook. And then Frank Capra's movies, because that just bedrock Americana and that people are essentially good. And the only thing that messes people up is greed. You know, is that any less true? The only thing, if we figure out human greed, then 
every political system works if we think, you know, everything is is made wrong by greed. But I got those basic fundamental values from Frank Capra movies. It's a Wonderful Life literally saved my life. I saw it in college and I was really spinning out of control and wondering the world I want to believe in just isn't here. And then I saw that movie and I go, okay, the world I want to believe in exists, but it's 40 years ago, you know, and, and this world isn't behaving that way. But those were my values, just bedrock shit. I had been market testing all my life by seeing what works when people read something. And I think I've always had a good editor inside and a good bullshit detector and a good clock. Like knowing when something, just instinctively knowing when something has gone on too long. I, you know, I didn't take regular college courses and learn the British and the Russians and all that deep literature. I listened to rock and roll lyrics, the poets, you know, Paul Simon, the Beatles, the Stones, um, the band, Joni Mitchell, you know, on and on, the who. And and just because what rock and roll did was they, they would boil these things down to just a really crisp image and it could hit you in the gut. I learned from the rock and roll poets and from people like Steinbeck and Kurt Vonnegut kind of brought me into modern into writing that's modern enough and can free you up a little bit because Steinbeck can really be a, yes, obviously, and Bob Dylan. You know, Bob Dylan probably more than any of them, but the, any writer can tell you that. What he did with language, what he did with what he did with phrasing, what he does with consonants, just listen to some of his lyrics and where he puts the consonants, blew me away. And movie dialogue, movie and TV dialogue. So modern language, but the, you know, you put modern language and the values that I had and the influences I had and the market testing I've been doing all along. And I just had faith that I was good at this. Well, that all makes a lot of sense for your voice, but what about the writing skills themselves? Has, has the writing part of writing always come naturally to you or were you a book learner or were you reading screenplays or writing part came naturally always screenplays i took three years to write my first screenplay because there weren't any books Mm. that i was aware of probably i was too proud to (laughs) do it that way anyway at 21 years old 22 years old i'm going to figure this out but i did figure it out intuitively i never knew what the end of the first act was but i knew i had it right just because it felt right and then when i learned these things i went back and realized this is what i was doing so I learned intuitively what, where the moments are in a movie and a, and a two hour, 90 minute, two hour experience, you know, something's got to happen. And, and um, I got the clock and I got that just by doing it and doing it and doing it and taking out what doesn't seem right and taking out what doesn't seem right. And, you know, the 10,000 hours, that whole thing, the difference between writing and storytelling. I remember I was out in Malibu visiting my, my friend before I moved back out west. And there was one of those pay-per-view fights. All these guys came over to watch the fight, but my friend's friend was friends with Chris and he brought this 18 page memo. He just brought it home from work. And I said, what's that? So I missed the whole fight. I read that thing because they said that this was what how the Lion King was done. And this is what's how Star Wars was done. Two of the biggest movies you could imagine. So I thought I'm gonna take a look at this. And then I realized this is how you go from writing to storytelling because this is the western story that's it you know it's in our dna leave the comfort zone face danger come back with a treasure and a lesson you know um or you're dead you know your your culture your clan your society doesn't survive if somebody doesn't figure that shit out so it's in all of us and then not just come home with the lion for everybody to eat 
but come home with the story about how it happened. So while they're snacking on, you know, wild boar and shit, they're hearing a story by the fire. Both things kept the community going. Without the story, they're going to have to figure this out every time. You know, as soon as the first guy dug a pit and put spikes in it, that idea went like wildfire, but people had to hear about it. You can't wait for other people to think up. So that's how society advanced is by the stories, the solutions we figured out and the stories that we tell about how we figured out that solution. So I intuitively got that in my system. Then I saw, oh my God, here's a way where you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Here's 13 steps. So when I would pitch things, um, at the time, you could you didn't, there weren't pitch decks. You could actually go in and sit down across from somebody and tell them a story. And if they liked it, they'd kick it upstairs. You know, if they didn't like it, they'd say the guy upstairs isn't going to like it. Nobody ever tells you their opinion. They tell you what the person right above them would say. I like it, but you know, Ben, yeah. he's not going to go for this. That's how they stay your friend. Well, for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with the Vogler memo, um, if you struggle with a story, uh, Google it, read it. Uh, when I decided that writing was where it was at for me and was getting into things, it was one of the earliest things that I read. And I, launching into it, I, what is this craziness? But, but man, by the time you uh, reach page 18 or whatever it is uh, in that, um, in that memo, you will have learned something. You don't, you don't, you don't have to go well, read the, all the, the books um, about the journey, but um, if you at least read that memo, it is powerful stuff. Yeah. You know, and the other timing about this that was great was that summer, one of the scripts that got sent to me was called Iron Will to do a rewrite. Do what you do to this adventure story about a 17-year-old kid who goes on a dog sled race, you know, back in 1917. I was resisting it. Um, it, it was a, it was an offer from Disney and, you know, my agents in the community they were saying, you know, this is, they're going to load to me, Disney was, they found people they could get cheap and they sort of would hire them to do as much as they could do, then get another person. I was happy to enter that thing. I mean, this is the Katzenberg era and they, everybody had a terrible reputation, but, and I was saying, I'm going to have great stories to tell about this. And I'm not going to be one of these writers that, you know, is bitching about, the job they have in a movie studio. Right. <laughs> Come on. So, so, but they sent me the script called Iron Will. A year before that, they sent me a script called The Mighty Ducks. And um, I read the script of The Mighty Ducks and they wanted me to do, I said, I thought I was being a good Boy Scout. And I said, you're going to, this isn't, I, I, there's somebody can do a better job than I can on this. I'm not great with ensemble things. You know, this is the fat kid with the glasses and this is the city kid and this is the kid with the divorced parent, you know, those little types that went. I just said, there's somebody better at this than me. I'd rather have you pissed off at me now than pissed <laughs> off at me later. I thought that was great. Stuff. They don't operate that way at all. But then they made the Mighty Ducks. So when Iron Will came around, um, I was resisting doing it. I passed a couple of times and then Michael Roberts at Disney would come back to my agent. And it wasn't one of those cases where they kept offering more money because Disney didn't do that. Um, but I had it in my head, wait a minute, they made the Mighty Ducks, and this is on the production schedule. They're going to shoot this movie. At that moment, I read this memo, and I go, I can make Star Wars on a dog sled. I can follow the same exact steps because this movie is for kids, teens. I don't have to get all sophisticated. I can literally, ordinary world, call to adventure, refusal of a call, meeting the mentor, training sequence. 
boom, 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 right in order. And I thought, if I get this to work, this really works. And so when that's what made me say yes to Iron Will was the night I read that memo and realized, here's how to write it. And here's how to set up um, how to tell every story. If this works, everything will work. Wow, interesting. Joseph Campbell would be pleased. <laughs> uh, it would be great to know that, but yeah, no, I yeah. completely, completely followed his sequence. And, and, but it was all, that's the other, we go all the way back to the beginning. It wasn't just that I completely followed his sequence. It was me doing that. So when you guys completely follow a sequence, you'll have handled that part. But the you that's doing it is what makes it sell. Because you're, that your heart and your soul, what's in there from you that, that um, I always tell you know, all you guys, write the story that only you can write. Which means whatever you're writing, put 100% of you in it. Hold nothing back. And, um, you know, find places to put it. We don't all need to see everybody spill out their purse, you know. Uh, but uh, whatever story comes to you, you know, you, if, it, if it comes and it won't go away, you got to trust it. And do the technical work and just trust that the unconscious stuff is happening. And uh, you'll have worked out a lot of your own personal problems and, and, and demons by the time you finish the thing because your characters are going to be doing that too. It's just your unconscious knocking on the door getting you to do something so it can work something out. Do you have moments while writing that you're, say, like, surprised by who shows up at the door? Are you on a... Oh, my God. All the time? All the time. All the time. Those are the best yeah. moments. Like, what the... This happened. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I got a whole subplot out of my book just for the need, because I knew this takes place at a boarding school, and I knew from having gone to one that one thing boarding school kids don't have is cars. So if they want to get anywhere, they need to have a day student friend who has a car. Yeah, let's let's talk about the fact that um, uh, now you're a novelist. Um, the last two questions I was going to ask you, you pivoted and talked about the very things I was going to ask. So thanks for doing my job for me. Uh, <laughs> attachments, the novel, it's fantastic. Um, and it is, uh, yes, I'll... Since we are on camera here, Need that um, signed copy. It's fantastic, and it it it's yours is signed. Wait, no, I, I need that signed copy. I said, oh, you need yeah. it signed. Oh yeah, um, the it's to me this novel is very you in. Uh, I'm gonna uh, let me back up here. I don't think, in my limited experience, admittedly, I don't think screenwriters writing novels is always going to work out terribly well because there is something um, very singular, um, perhaps many singular things, can I say that, about writing screenplays that don't necessarily uh, translate for a novel. Reading your novel and comparing it to what I've read of your screenplays, it's incredibly similar in a way in how sparse your, your use of language is. You are, or should be, proud of your writing, but you don't appear to be proud of your words, if, if that tracks. Um, or vocabulary. I read, you know, a lot of novels, and they may still be good novels, but when I'm reading, I am extremely aware that the author was 
very proud of the sequences of words that they were crafting. When I read attachments, I, it looks to me like you are very confident in your story and in your characters and that you are never using three words when two words would do. And so, for, first of all, does that sound right? That's what I get from it. Oh, um, the story scared the hell out of me every day because I didn't know where it was going. And um, and no, the the word part, I love the words. I love the sequence. I, I, you know, again, that's what I got from the rock and roll guys. Just the rhythm of a sentence. And, and, and I, I can't stand an extra word. If you don't need it, get rid of it. But I remember, I think probably 1998, walking on this exact beach. There was a, there's a part in there, there's a chapter where Laura, the mother, is um, about to leave her kids with her parents so that she can go to the school and be part of whatever's happening. And because she, she can't sit at home alone while this is going, this drama is going on 100 miles away. Um, so she's writing a note. You know, the note we all, everybody leaves for the babysitter. I got that idea from like the first friend of ours when I was a young couple, first friend that got married, watching my friend write this, fill out a legal pad so that she could go to a movie for two hours, you know, and everybody does it. Yeah. You know, I know if she does it, everybody does it. So this entire chapter is her writing this note. And there's a sentence in it about which doctor to call for certain emergencies. And this was 1998. So... I'm walking down this beach and I went, no, 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 which doctor to page? That's a better word than call. Because that tells the reader, that also tells one day, that tells the actor who this character really is. Do you call a doctor or do you page a doctor? Because at the time, that was the quickest way to get to somebody. So when it's when you're a mother and it's your kid and you're sick, you fucking page the doctor. So I just was cracking up walking, just knowing. And every time I get to that part, I'm right back on that beach coming up with page instead of call and me that's always the thing you know not only is there a necessary word but is there a better word constantly and there's certain words i if i use it somewhere i won't repeat it so i gotta have a different word to me extra words are either the inexperience or the ego of the writer if if you're inexperienced you're gonna have too many words and if you want to show what a great writer you are you're going to use more words than you need when you don't want to tell anybody what a great writer you are and you want to tell them a great story and after they finish reading the story then they can want to know who the writer is uh but you've got to be completely out of the way and every any painter any musician any writer you've got to be completely out of the way and it's not about you the thing is it's not about you for now if you do it right it will be all about you you know that's what that's what we don't get when when I when I read people's scripts or their early material and I there's this constant elbowing saying you know I'm going to show you how clever I am I don't care how clever you are tell me the story yeah yeah and I, I feel like I sort of launched into this by giving you a, a pretty clumsy compliment but I want to be crystal clear the language of the novel beautifully 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 gets the job done you understand the people you understand the world you understand what's going on without ever tripping over uh, a damn thing and without feeling like anything is getting in the way. It's you and the experience of the characters in the world. And I love it. So thanks for writing that. Why did you, why did you turn your screenplay into a novel? 
because my instinct, my instinct when I got the idea was, you know, maybe the reason this didn't sell as a movie is because it's supposed to be a book. And just that. Well, my advice to our listeners would be then have instincts that are as good as Jeff's and you'll do, (laughs) you'll do super well. (laughs) At least in some areas of life, but, um, (laughs) um, you, you know, you don't just trust your gut as some saying, I mean, you know, you take your life experience and you, you learn to trust your gut by the times you listen to it and the times you didn't. And then you sort of average out, well, which, which pays better attention. And the times I listened to my gut and I was wrong. Well, what about that? You know, just don't just say, don't listen to your gut anymore. What didn't I know? Or what, you know, how to refine that? How would I do it now? You know, even though you can't go back, I got something told me, pick it up, think about it as a book. And the toy I was going to use was at the time, I remember all the way back to high school, where a friend of mine wrote this beautiful short story. And it had little caption headings for each character and say Brian and say Bailey. And I thought, that's really cool. I'm going to use that one day. So I was 16 when I saw that. So now I'm 37, 38. And um, hey, I could use that. I was older than that um, when, at 98. Remember that? That's when I decided to turn into a book. It was a screenplay in 90. I wrote it as a book in 98. And that's when I started it. And it became just a writing challenge. Because for me, now that I can get into people's heads and I'm freed up from, you can only show behavior. Uh, you can actually include thought. And I could use that style. I went to I went to town on it. I loved it. But then I found that, you know, the story logic was just brutal. And it was really hard to, um, every day it was like, how am I going to get out of this? You know, I don't, I don't know where I'm going, but I know I got to get out of that. You know, and I know where I, I didn't know that I was going to live or die. I didn't know if this couple was going to be together. I didn't know anything. They figured it out. So then as a screenwriter, being, a, I'm just curious, having uh, 300 pages to play with, 500 pages to play with, as opposed to 110 or 90 uh, unless you're James Cameron or Quentin Tarantino, what what was that like as a, as, as a writer? Did, did you enjoy that more, having more freedom on the page? Uh, yeah, yeah, because um, in the very first draft, there's a moment where a kid, the teenage kid, throws the football to his best friend. I have the kid throwing the ball, and four pages later, four single-space prose pages later, the kid catches the ball. <sighs> You oh, know, that's great. And I didn't use any of that. That scene's not even in the thing anymore. But but the point was, I just went off on what they were thinking and where they were going. And it was just these, you know, the same way you ask me a question right. and 45 minutes later, the end of the answer happens. <laughs> but what happened in that 45 minutes? What a journey. So um, what I learned so much about these characters from, from the arc of that football, then, but in a movie, he throws the ball, he catches it. That's it. Uh so that was great freedom. And um, it was just a different style. It was a different way of working. And I, I really liked it. Now I'm turning it back into a movie. And I got to I gotta pay. I have to, like, listen to all the stuff I tell you guys. There can only be one main character. You know, um, you know, you, you got to have a log line that you can just hang everything on. And it's got to stay really close to that. And everything, every terrible, torturous thing I make you guys do, I'm doing it to myself to get this thing and to figure out how to turn a multi-character book into a single-character movie. 
for our listeners who maybe are just really getting started with writing or are hopefully just here because they find the topic interesting, uh, how would you define logline for people? And I'm excited about this because those of us who know you consider you a wizard or sensei or, or what have it of logline writing. So would you provide a uh, meta logline by uh, explaining briefly what a logline is? The logline is, the perfect logline is one sentence long that contains um, four elements of a story and leads to a question. And the purpose for a logline are two purposes. And one is so that when somebody says, what's your story about, you can tell them in one sentence and they can decide if they want to hear more. And after 45 years of hearing people tell me their stories and they're never telling me a story, they're telling me scenes they thought up or beginnings and the way we do it in the logline class, they're describing the ingredients of their pantry, but they're not telling me mm. what they're making. And if you tell me what you're making, then I'll say what goes into it. That's So the four elements are a hero, a goal, a threat, and a strategy. And uh, the fifth element, the question, is, is, is what you want the person who hears that to ask, which is, will it go this way or will it go that way? So um, the iconic one that I... I I, I made up for Rocky was a down and out boxer gets a once in a lifetime chance to fight the heavyweight champion of the world. In that, a hero, a down and out boxer, a goal, uh, fight the heavyweight, beat the heavyweight champion of the world. The threat, you're beating, you're fighting the heavyweight champion of the world. He can kill you. And the strategy, train, run up those steps, you know, hit the beef. The question is, is he going to win? Everything. So if Stallone actually did that, and I have a feeling he wrote that thing in a hurry, too. It just has all the immediacy of that. And it just came poured out of him, um, out of his truth. When you get those four things, you're telling somebody everything they need to know. It, just like you're telling a story about, well, I, I wanted to drive down to L.A. today, but I left too late and got stuck in the traffic, but I had to get there by six anyway. Um, and, you know, someone's going to say, well, did you get there? If you tell it a certain way. So it could be any goal. It can be a goal to get somebody... There was a whole movie, the man, the whole play, stage play, the man who came to dinner. The whole goal was to get this guy to leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> he, came, he came, he broke his leg, he was giving advice to everybody. And, and, you know, so a goal can be to get somebody to leave your house or a goal can be to knock the asteroid, you know, out of, out of um, orbit so that we can not die as a planet. It doesn't matter. The same four elements are there. A hero, a goal, a threat. Not an obstacle, but we can we can blow off obstacles where we don't blow off threats. Um, that's the reason we might not pay back so much money we owe them, but we pay our taxes. One's an obstacle, one's a threat. I think we can all see how a logline is useful as, say, an elevator pitch if you find yourself in there with the head of the studio. Um, also valuable for me as a tool to figure out if I actually understand what I'm writing, because, because yeah. I mean, you have to go through an initial stage of kind of understanding how to put one together, the, the technical exercise. But once you know how to put one together and know why, if you, is it fair to say that if you find you just can't find a log line that works, um, then you've got a, that's at least a red flag. You've probably got a problem. You have a problem. And one thing, there's, there's, there's two ways to solve it. Because the real purpose of the log line is so you know what to write and what not to write. 
you know, telling somebody about it, first you got to write it, you know, um, and the way to do that is to have a one sentence with those elements, a hero, a goal, a strategy, a hero, a goal, a threat, a strategy. And because if you're constantly, if the hero is constantly reminded of his goal and constantly facing the threat, he's got to come up with a new strategy every time because the last thing didn't work. Just going from those elements will, will follow the desire line of the hero, throw shit in his way, make it impossible for him not to get this goal and make it impossible for him to get it and then see what he does. That's every story, he or she. That's every story. So when you have those elements yourself, you know what goes into your script and what doesn't. And the other way, so you can spend another week on it, or the other ways you can spend three, four, six, ten weeks mired in act two because you don't know what to do. And spinning your wheels in the middle of the second act is just as as degrading. It's it's not degrading, it's just draining. It drains the shit. So always easier to come up with it first, no matter how long it takes. But we just did this in my small group, uh, and um, we do every every month on the online workshop. It has never taken me more than 15 minutes, and it usually takes five to take somebody's pantry full of ingredients and to turn it into a long line. I've right seen you do it in 25 and seconds. I've seen it. I've seen it. <laughs> and and uh, um, the funny thing was, before we did these workshops, I was walking on the same beach talking to Kirkpatrick on the phone, David, talking about we should do a long line workshop. And I realized I didn't have one for my own movie that I was doing from the book. I got all mad at myself. So I thought, you know, I'm going to be making people do this and I haven't done it myself. And at that point, I'd spent about three months using one strategy, you know, uh, you know, just there were 60 chapters in the book. And I figured my strategy is going to say, I'm going to break down each chapter and see how I would movie cinematize this that's not a word how we make this you know use the tools of cinema to tell this story and i knew eventually because i have this rule where there can only be one main character i knew eventually somebody's going to take over the story and i sort of thought you know it was really kind of only narrowed down to three people but i thought one of them is going to take over and then i started applying and and then when i told and then one of them kind of did and but i wasn't really going forward it wasn't fun and I'm walking on the beach talking to David on the phone. And I made the, I said terrible words. I said, I don't even have one for mine. And then once I said it out loud, I knew I had to go get one. So I came back to the house, sat down and worked it out until I had one. And um, as soon as I had that, just like I told you, I know immediately everything that didn't need to be in the script just mm. dropped right out. Like certain certain things lit up and certain things went dark because I knew I wouldn't need them. And when I got the guy, when I got his goal, when I got the threat, when I got his strategy, and then I figured out everything to put in to get in his way and to make it harder for him to do what he was trying to do, to get him to see if he breaks. Because um, that's what you have to do to your main character. You've got to break him. Well, that makes great sense, of course. Um, I think we've uh, hopefully been over plenty of things that our listeners will find inspirational. I have a feeling beginning writers might also uh, be a little overwhelmed by all this. Do you have some advice for people who are determined to be professional writers and are getting rolling? What should and or shouldn't they be doing on a daily basis 
when they are trying to make their art. You better know why you're doing it. It's good to know why you're doing it because your why has to be stronger than all the reasons why mm. not. That's important because there's a lot of reasons not to. But if it's your if your why is unshakable, that's the first thing. Um, I would say I'm so popular today. I don't know what's going on. People are sending messages. Um, I would say get three books right away. Get Sid Field's book called Screenplay. Get Chris Vogel's book called um, The Writer's Journey. Yeah, you know, The Writer's Journey. And um, when you've done those, then get Blake Snyder's book Save the Cat. And there's some other great authors who wrote written great books, and there's all great programs. But start with those, and then go to the bookstore or the you know online aisle for screenwriting books. Because now you can fill a warehouse with them, um, whatever appeals to you. It'll be a dialogue thing or a genre thing, whatever. But those three books are the foundation of modern movie writing and Western storytelling. Be prepared to study the masters, read really good stuff. Don't don't read bad stuff. Um, work at your craft. Be prepared to suck for a while. You know, and just pretend you're, you put a tennis racket in your hands for the first time. You're not going to be serving 90 mile, you know, fastballs over the net. Be prepared to suck. Be prepared to trip. Always go back to how bad do you want this? Do you want it enough to write stuff that sucks? But look for the stuff that's good. Look for the stuff that doesn't suck and figure out how you did that and watch things and read things. And if an emotion comes up in you, ask yourself, how did they do that? If you care about a character by the third page, how did they get me to care about this person? And, and because you got to learn how to do that too. You got to learn how to deconstruct. So you have to become a student of it and a fan of it. But also the main thing is you really have to like writing. Your butt's going to be in the seat for a long, long time. And you've got to be, even though results can come overnight, most don't. So if you're in it for a career, if you're in it for the long haul, it's you got to know it's going to be a long haul. And then what happens today isn't the end of the world. It's a piece of what's going to be five years from now. And But it, it can feel like the end of the world today. So yeah, let it, let it feel terrible. But get back and get perspective. It's just one day. It's just no matter, you know, if you lost the competition or, you know, whatever it was, or you got fired, whatever it was, that's part of a continuum. And by how you take that news or how you handle that event has a lot to do with where you are in five years. And if you go, screw this, why does this always happen to me? You know, you're going to get an answer because you're an idiot, you know, or because you're not worthy or because, you know, if you say, how can I take this terrible thing that just happened and fit it into the overall narrative of my story and my art, how do I make this fit? If you ask that question, you're going to get somewhere. How do I make this fit the story that I want to tell about my life, that I want to look back and be able to say, rather than that person's an asshole, or this has always happened in the business, and everything that's disempowering, the way to get yourself through is remember how bad you want it, commit yourself to getting better at it every day, no matter what it takes to get better. Sometimes not writing is a good day of writing. You know, um, work on your, you know, work on your health, your physical health and your mental health and your emotional health. It's one big giant package. If you let one of these things go, um, it brings down all the rest. One F in school doesn't, you know, if you get A's, B's, then one F, it's, that's going to define your year. It shouldn't, but it will. Jeff, I, I don't know. So do everything. All it takes is everything. And that's the one thing you got to know. All it takes is everything. You give it everything and you're intelligent about your choices. And you're going to have to get some luck. 
which, you know, the magic fairy does touch um, certain things and doesn't, you know, God does whisper in certain ears and doesn't whisper in other ears. So if God's whispering in your ear, be up to the task. And that is something that every, that's the one thing that every singer, every single writer can control in a world where there's nothing you can control. The one thing you can control is, am I up to the task? Wow. Uh, I don't know how you manage to consistently deliver answers to tough questions that are so so (laughs) understandable and actionable and somehow therapeutic all at the same time. So thanks for (laughs) being that guy. And of course, we've got to throw in there that all of all of these people trying to make a go of it with writing should be visiting storysummit.us to see what the organization is up to, what classes and events, many of them online, some of them free are going on. I don't mean to shill, but... No, you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say, like, just really quick to chime on what Jeff was saying. Had we not taken that cruise and taken that risk and believed in ourselves and taken that opportunity and myself uh, (laughs) working to, to, to get on that ship, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now or this discussion. And we wouldn't be meeting with you every month, Jeff, and you helping us with our log lines and working on things and giving us tools to to not just us, but to other writers and to, to our listeners. So yes, please check out Story Summit to our listeners because you can you can too find a wonderful writing community uh, just like we found. It's just as inspiring. It's just as inspiring to me Oh, well, thank you. That this 19-year-old kid did what he had to do to get on that phone. Yeah. I think I was 21. Yeah. But. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people take right. it for granted. But when you talk about how 21, okay. Oh, yeah, Mariah was 19. You were 21. So so um, she was the official youngest person. Uh, but you wanted it so badly that you did what it took. And you did some pretty impossible things. But you had a singular notion, I'm going to be on that ship. And I'm going to get the experience that I want out of the story summit thing. And you did what you had to do and you did it in the amount of time you did. So what I'm going to offer you, and I think I already told you this, is if you knew how to succeed at that, you already know how to succeed. Well, thank you, Jeff. That means a lot. Because the architecture of how you did that is the same. You got to know what you want. You got to take action. You got to see what kind of results you're getting. You got to get flexible, take another action, all based on what do you want and how bad you want it. You wanted it so bad that you did things you never did before. You got on it, and the reward is two years later, all of our lives. I've never seen a more supportive, sometimes too supportive, (laughs) but but a more supportive (laughs) community. You know, every now and then somebody's got to get whacked, but, but, you know, um, but too supportive is better than too competitive. But I've never seen um, a more supportive community. And, uh, you know, it rolls from the from the from the top down. That side of David, that side of Deb, that side of me, uh, Tab. You know, Jane, Jane, Amy. You know, it's it's all about um, just the generosity, just spilling out. And and when we find people who are um, who 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 are brought into that, you know, we're all kindred spirits, or you'd find a different conference. So we're all we're all finding each other. And that kind of loop and that kind of connection, believe me, I'm, I'm getting plenty out of this. So if you're thinking, why is he so generous? It's because I'm getting something out of it. It's not really generosity at all. <laughs> I'm taking care of me, you know, because God damn it, it's all about me. 
<laughs> let's let's face it. With every single one of us, it's all about us. But if you're willing to put that aside, just down the road, and you make it about other people, when that's done, it will it will come back to having been about you. You're going to get your reward. You're going to have people in your life that you love that you can rely on, and they can rely on you. You're going to have healthy boundaries and healthy healthy times with people. You're going to be people that are happy when you're happy and sad for your sadness. Um, that's success in life. It isn't just getting a script sold. It's getting a script sold and having people be genuinely happy for you because it's hard. Uh, when you sell a book or you sell a script, you've entered a part of the American culture that um, can make even the people closest to you feel distant and feel threatened. And you get some crazy reactions. This community, I've seen people announce. I'm like, I'm looking at 100 faces when somebody announces that they just got a publisher. They And I'm looking. I don't see any jealousy, you know, and every single one of us has got to be thinking, God damn it, why isn't that me? That's human. That's our first response. I'm watching everybody's second response, and it really is genuine happiness for the person that just got something. And that's unusual. That doesn't happen in the business. That's for damn sure. We have this community where you could be happy for someone else's success, even if you have to admit to yourself, I'd rather that story was about me right now. But then you get determined, you say, okay, how do I make the story about me? Who do I have to be? What do I have to do to be the person that gets announced as the one that just got a publishing deal or a movie deal? How do you step up to the task? That's all we can control. You probably want to end on that, but that's, you know, it, it comes back to that. Are you, are you up to the task of the things that you want? Well, I indeed you- can't imagine a better, better uh, note for us to land on there. Thank you, Jeff. For all of your time, I uh, I discussed perhaps an hour or so with you, and we've gone way over. Well, we've gone <laughs> well beyond, God. but it's just because we're all such good friends and hanging out. Because I can't do a short answer. I, I got so much better at short answers, and I completely lost it. So Kirkpatrick's going to get me for this, and let's just not send him the link. You know, I don't want to hear. It. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand. Let them hear it. Well, we're gonna you know? we're gonna <laughs> edit it me. down to twelve minutes and turn everything you said into pithy little quips. So you, you, <laughs> you just wait. You know, this this is me being me, and you gave me a chance well, to be me. So you know, well, I'm we're happy you. We love you. I'm so. tired of not being full. Well, thanks full for Jeff. coming. So yeah, we love you. Thanks for coming here and being your true <laughs> self, and for sharing so Thank many you. truths <laughs> with us. Uh, this has been great, and. Uh, Hope to see you in person again one of these days soon. Soon. You know, let's get one to happen in Santa Barbara because let's this do place it. is beautiful and <laughs> I don't have to fly. Great talking to you, Jeff. Thank you. Okay. Oh, he's so great, Goodbye. isn't he? Oh, absolutely. Jeff is always full of great stories and advice, and it's rarely the same thing twice. I've heard almost none of that before. Even though we've talked to Jeff plenty of times, it is such good, good stuff. So, yes. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeff. And please, everybody, don't forget to check out Jeff's novel, Attachments. I can promise you a great read there. And big thanks to Story Summit for making this podcast possible. It is a great organization headed up by sincere people. And I say that as a person who's been to these events and have met these people. They're terrific. If you'd like to meet other writers make your writing better, make a career of writing, or even take the writing career you've already got to the next level, please do take a look at what they have to offer. You can find them at Story Summit, 
www.thepodcastnetwork.us. Thank you for listening, everybody. And until next time, keep writing and never give up on finding your audience or producer or publisher. As a great, great man once told me, like most writers, you'll probably hear a million no's, but all it takes is that one yes. I've been your host, Brian Landwehr, this episode produced by myself and Bailey Patterson in conjunction with David Paul Kirkpatrick, founder of Story Summit at storysummit.us. Thanks to Peach Jam Records for post-production and original music by Kenton Edward. I hope to be a writer myself someday.